Thanks for tuning to Digital Voices Podcast, where we chat digital transformation, challenges and opportunities across healthcare and life sciences. And now, your host, Ed Marks. Welcome to Digital Voices. Thank you for joining us. And I'm super excited for our guest today. Uh, Dr. Sachin Jain uh, is with us. Welcome, Sachin. Thank you so much. Great to be here with you, Ed. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're super, super, super busy doing all sorts of great things for this uh, world and our communities. So uh, thank you for taking the time. Hey, before we get there, Megan, question for you. Experience with uh, senior living or grandparents? Have you ever uh, been part of your grandparents' um, care? Not really. No, I've got, um, I'm lucky to have some very young, active grandparents. My grandmother is, I mean, I say young, she's 92, but she could run circles around me. Um, lucky, lucky everyone's still running. Yeah, that, no, that's great. Cause we're, we're going to jump into an HBR article a little bit later on sort of uh, senior care and wellness and some of the great things that uh, Sachin's uh, team has, has been doing. Yeah. I'm thankful as well. I have an 87 year old dad who's still very much independent, get to do some cool things with them. And uh, my wife's mother, who lives in rural, rural India, she's 97 and, and same thing. Uh, totally independent. It's great. The best way to go. So, uh, Sachin, I was trying to think, like when we first met, I, I get the feeling it's all been virtual. I think that's right. I think that's yeah. right. So yeah. I've, I follow you like many others. Uh, I think you're an amazing leader, and that's why I wanted to get a chance to share a little bit uh, more with you, about you, to our audience and digital voices. And so, again, appreciate you being on here. And the question that we ask right out of the gate is, what's on your playlist? So what kind of music do you like to listen to? Oh, well, you know, a lot of what's on my playlist right now is music that I'm actually learning how to play on the piano. So um, I've kind of resumed piano lessons over the last couple of years. I took a few years when I was a kid. And so right now, um, it's Rachmaninoff Piano Concerto Number 2. Um, and you know, it's an amazing piece of music if you haven't heard it before, uh, with, um, w which has actually been kind of appropriated by a number of others since then, um, particularly pop musicians, including Celine Dion and, and others. Um, and then the other piece, um, is actually, um, you know, a few the other pieces I should say are a few numbers from Tick, Tick, Boom, which is the biopic of, uh, Jonathan Larson that was on. Netflix last year. And um, there's some just, I think, tremendous piano pieces there. So I'm, I'm trying to, uh, you know, learn some of the more difficult chords and get those into action. No, that's great. I, one of my nephews, he's getting his PhD in piano performance. So I get to see all of his stuff and he's getting uh, his PhD now at TCU, which isn't too far away from me in Dallas. And uh, Rachmaninoff is definitely his, uh, his go-to. So, so uh, he would love the fact that that's, that's a piece that you're working on. What yeah, about... I I mean, Rachmaninoff is super interesting in that he actually dedicates, I think I have this right, he dedicates Piano Concerto Number no. 2 to his neurologist. He went through what is probably, you know, we would refer to today as a mental breakdown. And um, he actually, I think his neurologist really uh, nursed him back to health. And so there's an interesting healthcare connection, too, to that piece of music. Interesting. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to look into that. What about a life's message or passion? Is there something, that, words that you live by, something that drives you? You know, it's, it, yeah, there, there's several, but I would say the broader theme is just continuous improvement and, and you know, like lifelong learning. 
Um, I'm committed to, you know, continuing to develop myself. Uh, and that extends into, you know, my knowledge of healthcare, you know, my um, work as a leader. I've, you know, kind of continuously been coached now for years by different coaches who help me, you know, learn how to get better. Um, I have a tennis coach and I have a piano instructor. So I have a small corporation of people who are, um, you know, working with me to help me get better at a variety of things. You know, very different trajectories with each one of those uh, categories. No, I, I love that. We might get into that towards the end because I always like to bring it back to kind of the people part of of what we talk about. And, you know, that in order to be a well-rounded leader, right, you can't, you'll get burnt out, I think, if you just do leadership, if, if you just do your job all the time. You, you got to have other sort of things, other hobbies that uh, you work on and uh, have an outlet. And so uh, we may uh, jump on that topic as well. But, you know, you're clearly a very, very accomplished uh, individual rather than me reading off of uh, all your accolades. Can you kind of share some highlights like on a personal professional level, a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I mean, I was, uh, you know, kind of a kid grew up in a healthcare family, um, was always the one asking annoying questions about how the healthcare system worked. And, um, and, uh, you know, I was with a group of clinicians uh, in my family, never got particularly satisfying answers. And so I, um, you know, had spent much, much of my education really trying to understand the maze of U.S. healthcare. And I would say that that education continues today because yes, it yeah. is um, it is something that is truly impossible to understand in, in one sitting. Uh, I would say, um, you know, the highlights of my career have probably been, you know, my time in federal government. I was there during the Obama administration. Uh, I was part of uh, the implementation of both the High Tech Act as well as the ACA, um, uh, had a stint at the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT, and then I was at the founding, uh, on the founding team at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. That was definitely a highlight. Um, I would say the next highlight was really you know, my leadership of Caremore Health, um, which was um, you know, really one of the earliest Medicare Advantage-focused care delivery and health plan organizations uh, in the country it was a payvider before that term existed, right. uh, and then uh, I would say I would say my time at Scan is is unfolding before uh, bef- you know before me right now, and it's just been a really remarkable uh, journey. Uh, we've grown the company from a presence in you know primarily in California to now uh, Arizona, Nevada, Texas uh, on the Medicare Advantage side. We announced our combination with Care Oregon. Uh, which is um, a Medicaid-focused community-based regional health plan in Oregon, really amazing organization. Um, And then um, we've also launched four new care delivery companies over the last two years. I think the one that I'm most proud of, I'm I'm proud of all of them, uh, but it draws on a uh, a passion of mine from my undergraduate years, uh, which is, uh, you know, we've launched a homeless medical operation, actually, uh, and uh, we provide street-based medical care to older adults in the streets of, of Southern California, you know, where we have an epidemic of homelessness in plain sight. So uh, it's been a, a journey. Uh, I would say the other kind of big highlight for me has really uh, been mentoring and just working with, you know, people, um, you know, who are earlier in their career than I am and trying to, you know, help them, you know, succeed. I think, you know, the work of changing healthcare is going to really require a new generation of leaders who, Think differently about it and operate with a high level of integrity. And I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty committed personally to helping support, you know, the next generation of healthcare leaders uh, achieve their very greatest impact on on healthcare. 
Yeah, that's great. And if you could, I know this is really tough to boil it down to like two or three things, but you know, clearly you, you've got great leadership. You just talked about some of the highlights. You're on several board, many boards, right? Doing great board work, uh, a clinician, have a lot of success on the clinician side. What are one or two things that may have led to that sort of uh, leadership and, and development in you? Well, for me, it's just great mentors, candidly. Yeah. I mean, I've, I was, I've been lucky to have an embarrassment of riches in terms of people who've contributed to my personal growth and development. Um, one of my earliest undergraduate teachers was Don Berwick. Um, I, you know, I subsubsequently worked for Don a few times after yeah. that, uh, you know, at IHI as well as at CMS when he was CMS administrator. Um, you know, I was at, in business school. I was apprenticed to Michael Porter, who's, you know, widely considered, yeah. you know, father of the term, you know, value-based healthcare. Uh, I, you know, got to work with Mike Rosenblatt, who was the chief medical officer of, of uh, Merck and never really, you'll never meet a better person than Mike Rosenblatt. Uh, Sam, the late Sam Nussbaum, who was chief medical officer at, at Anthem WellPoint was a great mentor. Um, Lebo Lesson, uh, who was, um, you know, w- one of the kind of founding pioneers of Caremore, you know, huge, huge influence for me. She unfortunately passed away. Uh, and then, and then um, you know, Pete Hytayan, who uh, was my boss at, at uh, Anthem, now Elevance for a number of years, an- another just, I think, you know, spectacular leader. So I've just had, I've been lucky to have had a number of people professionally who have invested in my development. But, but even before that, I would say, you know, even as an undergraduate student, as a as a high school student, elementary school student, just lucky to have great teachers who've invested. And so I do feel a certain sense of obligation to pay it forward and, and give back as much as I can. That's great. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge proponent as well in uh, having mentors and mentoring others as a result. So you do a lot. You already talked about, you know, uh, getting back at, with the piano and uh, you have a tennis coach and you're, you're super involved in a lot of different things and your family is very important to you. Uh, and you, you do things socially as well. How do you fit it, fit it all in? So somewhat, someone's listening is thinking, oh my gosh, wow, how do I, you know, accomplish the things that uh, uh, Sachin has accomplished? Uh, how, do you, how do you make it all work? I don't. I mean, I, it's, it's, you know, you go through periods where you're, you're you know, majorly uh, imbalanced. You know, I would say, um, you know, I, I would say I'd be inauthentic if I didn't say some parts of my life have suffered uh, at different times. Uh, and I would say, you know, I'm, I'm still a student of trying to figure out how to put it all together. Um, you know, because I, you know, I would be lying to you if I said I had it all figured out. Um, you know, again, I think, I think what I will say is that some tasks that, you know, earlier in my career took me a really long time, uh, take me less time now. So it appears that I, you know, I'm spending more time doing certain things than, than, um, I once did. I, you know, I, people frequently ask about my LinkedIn posts, uh, which is just part of my daily discipline. Um, and they're like, "How do you find the time to write, you know, those, those posts?" And I'm like, "Takes me like five to seven minutes. It's just mostly kind of me, you know, sharing something I've been thinking about separately. It helps me formulate and kind of um, uh, kind of get some greater clarity to my thinking. And so, again, I, you know, I, I write. Uh, rather frequently. And I would say, um, again, that's more just because, you know, writing, which earlier in my career took me days and days and days to articulate a thought, you know, is now um, something that just comes a little bit more naturally. And I'm, you know, the same way that playing piano today is just a little bit easier than it was two years ago. Um, And I think it's one of those things where if you want to be 
you know, okay at something, you, you just got to invest the energy and the effort. And, um, and again, doesn't mean other things don't suffer. So um, I will say, you know, the, the answer is I, I don't really fit it all. And I'm, I'm yeah. just trying like, I'm trying like everyone else is. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. You know, you're clearly a leader. Was there a point in time where that thought occurred to you that, wow, I, I am a leader, maybe in your youth, maybe it was later in your life. Um, did you ever think about, was there a, a particular moment or did it just something that just kind of flowed? Yeah. I mean, I would, I would say I was, I always was focused on kind of doing my own thing is probably the best way to describe it. Ed, um, I, you know, me, and what I, and that's from a very early age, I think some of it just comes from an immigrant beginning story where you don't necessarily feel like you fit in. And so you've got to, you know, rather than trying to fit into someone else's framework, you develop your own framework. Um, I think a lot of people who feel like they don't belong, um, cope with it that way. And so, you know, I was, you know, while other kids were outside playing in, you know, the schoolyard and I was not a particularly athletic kid and didn't grow up in a particularly athletic family, I was like, you know, starting a nonprofit, right? So yeah. it was like, you know, it was just, it was just, you know, kind of marching to the beat of your own drummer a little drum yeah. a little bit. And um, and so I think that that's been a kind of a continuous part of my story is is you know, just finding a path to do, you know, do the thing that resonates most with me and try to be as authentic as possible uh, in the course of actually doing that. Yeah, no, that's a good one. It makes a lot of sense too, because, you know, I'm a, I have an immigrant story as well and I just did not fit in. I mean, we came over, we were wearing, you know, from Bavaria, I was wearing later hosen and stuff. And Is that uh, right? Yeah, it was. And so you had to create, you, to cope, you had to create your own, you know, reality and, and sort of reframe things and, and take a leadership position or else, you know, get beat up on the, on the playground or whatever. So, uh, yeah, that, that's very interesting. I never thought about it the way that, that you just mentioned. Now, Sachin, you mentioned earlier about, you know, writing some LinkedIn posts, taking a few minutes. Some of the things that you write are quite, you know, profound and quite stir things up a little bit in terms of the status quo. I'll give you one example. And then, um, then I want to ask you about, you know, your, your lack of fear about doing that. And, um, so one that you wrote in the, you know, sometime probably within the last 60 days, this is being recorded in uh, February of 2023 was about not taking these uh, gifts from vendors. So uh, many people may not know, and many do that, you know, when you're in a position of leadership, like for me, CIO or chief digital officer or something for you, CEO, uh, vendors will try to entice you with very uh, over the top gifts. And you said, no more, none of that. That's just wrong. Um, But that's just one example. Can you're unafraid. Can you just talk a little bit about, about that and you know, why you, why you're sort of wired that way. Yeah, I think it's, you know, some of it just comes from this view that if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Yeah. And I think many of us have had these had these early career experiences where we're like, you see things that don't compute. Yeah. And when you see that they don't compute, you know, you you kind of feel a little bit powerless to say something about them. Yeah. Um, because that's just the culture that you're operating in. And um, I just believe that if you're in a position of authority of an organization or, you know, a a position of leadership in an industry, you do have an extra set of obligations. I mean, what's funny is how many people 
call themselves leaders, right? Without really reflecting that much on what that word really means. Yeah. Um, you know, you're looking at a poster that I've owned for a long time now, which is of, of um, you know, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. These are folks who went against the dominant grain in their yeah. industry, in their world, forget industries, in their world, to, to challenge a status quo that frankly served a lot of other people really well and didn't serve them well. And like, that's leadership. Yeah. Um, you know, presiding over an X billion dollar organization and keeping things ho-hum, that's not leadership. And I think um, those of us who are in positions of responsibility, those of us who, you know, feel like we, uh, you know, have some higher obligation, I think need to use that that position to actually speak up. And, you know, where, where it surfaced for me was when, um, you know, an executive at a, at a, you know, vendor of ours offered me Super Bowl tickets last year in the middle of a rate negotiation where we were trying to drive down the price of, you know, the services that they offered for our members. And it, it occurred to me that they, they didn't even pause for a second to think about the fact that they were like, oh, well, we can't really lower the price of the contract. But here, by the way, here come to the Super Bowl. And Super Bowl tickets, last time I checked, I don't actually shop for Super Bowl tickets, are expensive. It's, you know, they're on the orders of tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. And, you know, not to shame, you know, uh, our industry too much, but but at, but why not? I mean, you know, the CEOs of lots of big companies in healthcare have boxes at the U.S. Open, yeah. they have boxes at, at, you know, the Super Bowl, they have boxes at the World Series. And, you know, that's not their money. That's the people's money. You yeah. Know? And, and, you know, if they, if they, if they're co companies, you know, work in the government program space, which actually most healthcare companies now operate in the government program space. And what I mean by that is Medicare, Medicaid, or the individual exchange market, um, either as a, you know, as a plan or a provider or a vendor, then you, you know, there is a higher standard that you have to hold yourself to. And all I'll say is, you know, if a mid-level manager in somebody's company, you know, uh, you know, got a gift of Super Bowl tickets from a vendor that they were negotiating with, they'd be fired on the spot. Right. So why are the rules? So why are the rules different for CEOs? Yeah. They shouldn't be. They shouldn't be. And I, you know, again, I'm not, you know, trying to be overly populist or anything in this regard. I'm just calling out a practical reality, which is we have multiple different ethical standards operating around companies, um, and there's too much. I scratch your back, you scratch my back, yeah. as opposed to just the healthy tension that should exist between people who, you know, operate in a supply chain. And there's this, you know, term that we use when we talk about vendors, which is going native, right? People go native with their vendors and they start to, they almost become extensions of their vendors when they work for, with them and for, for them too long, which is why, you know, purchasing departments and procurement offices are so important. One of the first things I did coming to SCAN was to recruit a, you know, a vice president of, of purchasing um, because we wanted to create more, you know, tension with our vendors, not necessarily, yeah. um, you know, doesn't mean we don't like them, doesn't mean we don't like working with them, doesn't mean we don't appreciate them. But, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be, you know, literally sitting next to them at, at uh, SoFi Stadium, which was the proposal that was made to me. Um, that, that's not okay. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. Uh, but I had an interesting sort of opposite experience recently. So, you know, I used to get the same sort of uh, offers all the time when I was, like I mentioned, when I was CIO, CDO. Uh, but recently I was working with a prospect of a big health system and 
the person basically said, well, you're not doing enough for me. And I was like, well, what, what do you mean? You know? And, uh, and he, so I asked him what, what, what would be enough? And it was around the time of the world cup. And he was talking about the going to the world cup. And I was like, wow, we, we don't do that. We're, you know, I'll take you out to dinner. Uh, but that's really the extent of it because it's really, yeah, you're, you're talking about other people's money. You're talking about, you know, you have to be good stewards of the, of the resources you have. And, and, and that's like just over the top. So I, I, I was kind of shocked, you know, being on the other side, experiencing that. Uh, so yeah, it's up to leaders like yourself, like myself, you know, to take that stand and, and, you know, make sure that it's, you yeah, know, and it's, and it's everywhere. I mean, this is yeah. not like a, this is not a rare practice. Um, yeah. And, and so what's interesting, what I'll just say is the following is like, you know, if a doctor accepts a pen from a, a drug rep, it's like a, it's like an event. I mean, that's the culture I grew up in, in Boston. Yeah. Medicine. Um, you know, if a doctor accepts a meal from a drug rep, it's yeah. an event. Why is it a, not an event if the CEO of a managed care company accepts, you know, tickets to a sporting outing yeah. from, you know, from a vendor or a provider partner or something like that? It's a, it's a huge yeah. issue. Um, and so, again, I think I'm very sensitive to the different ethical codes that exist across professional disciplines. And I will say healthcare executives need to adopt the same ethical code that we're expecting physicians to, to hold yeah. themselves up to. Why do you think, I mean, part of the burnout conversation is that I think there's a deep degree of cynicism about the people who are in charge of large healthcare enterprises because they see them do things like escape to Florida in the middle of COVID, yeah. um, you know, while maintaining their positions. I mean, we saw that happen. I mean, this stuff is embarrassing. It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah that was good. That, that's what, one thing that really draws me towards you and, and why, again, you know, I'm so thrilled to have you on our podcast is, you tell it like it is. It's real authentic, and I appreciate it. I could go on on the leadership topic forever, but I want to I want to switch over now to digital transformation a little bit uh, because I know at the same time you also understand the power of technology. So, how does technology play a role at Scan? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think technology is at the heart of everything that like needs to happen on behalf of patients. What's interesting is I actually view um, you know most managed care companies as technology companies. That, that ultimately deliver their services through technology. Um, and so I, you know, it's one of the reasons the CIO of the organization reports directly to me and always will. Um, it's one of the reasons we're, uh, you know, we're, why we're actually um, now bringing our organization together in combination with Care Oregon, which is, you know, we'd like to make even greater investments in technology. And when we have a bigger membership that we can actually work with and, you know, we can actually make deeper investments. I would say our biggest focus these days um, is really on trying to, um, you know, meet people where they are and finally digitize experiences that right now um, primarily take place through analog and paper, you know, formats. Um, and I would say one of the, you know, biggest opportunities right now, it's a boring one, is enrollment in Medicare Advantage. I mean, we actually think digital sales um, should be one of the channels through which people enroll. Um, again, I think, you know, brokers are super important. Uh, you know, our captive sales force is also important, but there's some number of older adults, Medicare beneficiaries who want to be able to self-enroll in a Medicare Advantage plan. And we want to make that as easy as, and as straightforward and as simple as possible. Um, I would say the other area where it comes up is really around the delivery of care. And we saw this over COVID, you know, lots of care needs to be in person. Some care can be virtual. And so, you know, the trick if you're a care delivery organization is making sure you're getting the right care delivered virtually and 
and the other types of care delivered in, in person and in facilities or in people's homes. And so again, I think that's a that's another huge opportunity. And then I think, you know, there's a, you know, we live in the era of of, of Chat GPT three, right? I mean, we've got, um, you, you know, we've got to start to think about these game changing technologies and how they apply to, you know, everyday healthcare experiences. And I'm not sure, um, you know, the industry has done a great job of of truly anticipating some of this. And so, you know, some of what my leadership team and I are doing are taking a you know, is taking a hard look at some of these types of technologies and actually um, imagining use cases that that can really, you know, meaningfully improve and disrupt the, the experience of care. Yeah. Yeah. And even that's why I was asking the question earlier with Megan, you know, even in the MA population, my dad's 87. He's got his virtual capabilities on his phone. He's very adept at uh, doing all things virtual, although, you know, like like some in his uh, from his era, he enjoys, you know, the social aspect of actually going in. Uh, but it's nice when you have when you have a choice for both. But, you know, that that leads me into this uh, HBR article uh, that came out last year, 2022, how you all reduce disparities in medication adherence. Um, can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, look, I, the disparities is something that we've now been talking about in healthcare for two decades. It's existed for, you know, as long as the U.S. has, has existed as a country. Um, we wanted to get out of the, like, talking framework. And everyone knows what I'm talking about. You know, it's, oh, you know, the healthcare organization, virtue signaling that they care about, that it cares about healthcare disparities. They hire a chief health equity officer. Um, we did something a little bit different. We actually tied uh, physician, we tied executive compensation rather to whether or not we closed disparities in medication adherence and made this an incentive for everyone at the director level and above in our company. And I can tell you, there's nothing more aligning and motivating than tying a particular goal to someone's compensation. And halfway through the year, we were like, oh, we're not getting it. And um, I think that forced us to take a hard look at some of the opportunities we had to improve, you know, on medication adherence disparities. And so we, um, you know, and started to introduce things like uh, racially concordant pharmacists, uh, telenovelas for uh, the Latinx population and getting uh, information to people in new formats. Uh, and again, I think using some technology solutions to automate, you know, refills and, and reminders. And, you know, we were able to actually improve, you know, medication fill rates and, you know, improve adherence rates um, to the tune of, uh, you know, more than 30%, which was above our goal of closing the disparity by 25%. And, you know, it was, it was very rewarding. It was very rewarding for a number of reasons. Um, but I would say the most important reason is that fewer people are going to have heart attacks, fewer people are going to have strokes. You know, this is, this is why we exist. Um, and so, uh, again, I think we're, you know, what I, what I think is we've, we've landed upon a model that the whole healthcare industry should embrace, which is, um, you know, actually putting our money where our mouth is and holding ourselves accountable for reducing disparities. It's way too easy to say, oh, it's the social determinants of health. It's really hard for us to move the needle on X, Y, or Z. Trust me, we said all the same things before our board came to us and said, no, you got to do something you know, bigger and bolder. And now um, we're in, in, involved in something even bigger and even bolder, which is a three-year effort to not just reduce disparities, but actually eliminate disparities in areas where 
people have said it's not possible, like flu vaccination rates in the African-American population, which are, you know, you know, tens of percentage points, um, you know, 20 to 30 percentage points off what they are for their Caucasian um, counterparts. And we're making a three-year commitment to eliminating them, you know, by a third, a third, a third each year um, and actually eliminating that disparity. It's not going to be easy, but is it the right thing to do? Absolutely. Will it actually help us figure out ways to make care better for everyone? Yes. And that's, you know, if even if you're the person who's least interested in disparities in your organization, but you're interested in improving care for all, you know, this is this is one pathway to do it. No, I love it. And that that may coincide with uh, this this next question in terms of directions. Where do you think kind of putting on your future hat? Uh, but I think you're already talking about it. You're already doing it. Uh, where do you think we're moving in healthcare, given the the involvement now, right, of retail, of big tech? So we've been completely disintermediated because we weren't taking action, I think, in part. And so now we've got uh, a lot new entrant, a lot of new entrants. So where do you think we might be headed in the next couple of years? Un- unpopular but realistic take. We're going to see a ton of failure. Um, you know, there's a lot of folks who are like, oh, let's get into healthcare. There's a big revenue pool there. Let's do it. Executing on great healthcare um, is hard work, and it's a different task than almost any other industry because it really re- relies on highly trained professionals to deliver literally hundreds of thousands of SKUs. Yeah. Um, and and what, I, what I mean by that is like every per- person is different, everybody's circumstance is different. And, you know, the retailization of healthcare is based on, I think, a fundamentally flawed premise which is that most healthcare can be, you know, kind of boiled down into 10 or 12 SKUs with 10 or 12 variations per SKU. That's not the real world. <laughs> and, you know, this is, a, this is a time where we're having tons of pharmaceutical innovation, diagnostic innovation, um, and costs may go up before they go down. And yeah. so, uh, again, I think a lot of the kind of foundational premises on which big company investments in healthcare, whether it's tech or retail, um, are a little bit flawed. And there's a little bit of like, if you actually look at how they hire folks for a lot of these jobs, it's a lot of, I know a guy, like I met a guy, like, you know, something, so-and-so met so-and-so at a conference or, or they used a search firm to kind of find a person who kind of maybe knew about healthcare. And, you know, that's great, but it takes a whole different corporate culture um, and, but then there's a, I know a company. So there's like the acquisitions free, like, oh, we're buying X, Y, or Z. Oftentimes, you know, to quote my CFO, like not even knowing what they're buying. He my CFO, whenever we talk about buying something says, what are we buying? Um, you know, like, what are they buying? Um, and I think, you know, a lot of these, these transactions are head scratchers. And we, we think to ourselves, well, they must be a lot smarter than I am, you know, if they're doing that deal. Well, guess what? I think a lot of them aren't much smarter. I think there's some big mistakes being made every day with some of these big transactions. Um, And the the mistakes will get lost and and washed away in corporate earnings. Um, I'm reading a book right now about, um, you know, the kind of, it's called Power Failure. It's about, uh, you know, the decline of General Electric, um, you know, over, you know, the last 20, 20, 20 some odd years. And, you know, the, the, the amount of kind of like bad, the number of bad decisions that get made in large enterprises for the wrong reasons um, is 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 very high, even in you know a, a very smart, sophisticated company 
like like GE. Yeah. So why do we think you know these healthcare transactions are going to turn out that much better? Yeah, no, that's a good point. Sachin, we talked about so much. We we uh, started off a little bit with uh, Rachmaninoff concerto number two, right? Um, yep. And then we talked a little bit about tennis, a little bit about, you know, having a well-rounded life, uh, a lot about leadership, a lot about mentoring, some of the things that you learned on the way and having teachers and giving back. I think that's like a, a main theme is, you know, giving back and then doing good uh, with with the, with the responsibilities that you have. Uh, we talked a lot about leadership. We talked a lot about technology, uh, digital within uh, the payer space uh, that, that SCAN is currently in. And a little bit about the market's heading where we're headed. So um, I want to leave the last word for you. Is there something that we missed that you want to share or anything that you want to double down on? Yeah, the one thing I'll just say is I think, you know, everyone's waiting for, um, you know, some big force to make healthcare a lot better. They're like, oh, you know, when I was younger, it was like, oh, we need more policy. I think more recently, um, you know, people have moved away from kind of imagining a policy silver bullet and have started thinking about value-based care as the next big silver bullet. And I have, a, I have a secret for everyone who's listening right now, which is the answer to what's going to make healthcare better is the person who looks at you in the mirror every morning yeah. uh, when you wake up. And it, it's got to start with us kind of setting new expectations for ourselves, new expectations for our teams, raising the bar uh, and getting out of our own, our own malaise. We have to stop being um, as complacent as we've been as an industry collectively yeah. and, start, and start telling the truth about what is and isn't happening. Sachin, this has been amazing. Uh, just all the wisdom and, 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 you know, the word I kept writing down, I took tons of notes was humility. You know, you've done many great things. You're a very humble leader uh, and very encouraging at the same time in terms of, you know, we can make a difference, but it does come down to me and you. It doesn't come down to digital technology or, you know, some policy, as you mentioned, but it's really those of us listening. So we, we have to take out, we're, we're, we're morally responsible now to go and take action. Uh, and make things happen. So thank you so much for being my guest on Digital Voices. Thank you, Ed. Enjoyed it. All right, that wraps up Digital Voices. We'll talk to you next drop. Thank you for listening to Digital Voices Podcast with Ed Marks. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on your preferred streaming service and leave a rating and review. And most importantly, thanks again for listening.